Hey, you're tuned into the 12th edition of Free City Radio podcast. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. On the show today, we're going to be visiting the impacts of the pandemic in different parts of the world and looking at how social movements, activists are responding to this global health crisis. I thought it would be interesting to visit a few places, um, major centers in the world outside of Montreal where Free City Radio is based and hear people's perspectives on the ways that activist movements, progressives um, within community organizing are responding to this health crisis, but also the ways that state power um, and the structures of social economic injustice that maintain a lot of power in many societies globally are responding to these challenges from social movements. Um, I'm thinking about our first uh, discussion today, which is with Andrew Fishman, uh, who is a reporter for The Intercept and managing editor of The Intercept uh, in Brazil. Uh, I wanted to speak with Andrew about the ways that the pandemic um, is affecting Brazilian society, um, especially how it's affecting um, uh, social classes that experience economic injustice. Um, of course, Brazilian President Bolsonaro has been uh, ridiculed in the international press for his refusal to acknowledge the reality of the pandemic. Um, but on the ground, um, I thought it was important to hear from um, The Intercept Brazil, um, uh, the managing editor, Andrew, about how it looks in a detailed way. Uh, beyond Bolsonaro, what does the pandemic mean in Brazilian society? And how does this current political moment in Brazil relate to um, the previous um, uh, governments of the PT, the Workers' Party, um, and how the current dynamic is related to um, the uh, social upheaval that took place uh, at the end of the consecutive runs of the Workers' Party under uh, Dilma Rousseff last and before that under Lula. Um, so this is our conversation. I think it's important to hear uh, this perspective from Brazil. Um, so here's uh, my conversation with the uh, managing editor at The Intercept Brazil. I want to specifically thank my friend Yusuf, who helped facilitate this discussion. Uh, so here's our, our talk. Maybe first, um, beyond the headlines, of course, we see so much um, coverage about the ways that uh, the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, is basically refusing to address the pandemic in, in scientific terms and is really focused on sort of this populist message around um, workers wanting to work and also this, of course, illustrates existing social inequalities in Brazil. Um, can you maybe start by highlighting what you feel some of the major points the Western media is missing in terms of the way that it's covering Bolsonaro's addressing or lack of addressing of, of the pandemic? Well, uh, Bolsonaro has really been, from the very beginning, he was following the lead of, of Donald Trump. Trump said that this wasn't uh, a big deal. Bolsonaro said the same thing. Trump said that hydroxychloroquine is is the solution. Bolsonaro said the same thing. However, Trump noticed that you know this is uh, 
this ain't going away, and that he he started to change his tone, even though not entirely, he's still resistant, but he's been much more reasonable. And you know that when you're saying that your president, that Donald Trump is more reasonable than your president, you're in you're in a bad situation, right? Uh, you know, Bolsonaro's really stuck to it, and he's been saying really explosive and uh, horrific things. Like uh, the other day, he was quoted in the in the newspaper of saying that masks are for, and he said a homophobic slur, basically like, you know, I'm not going to use a mask. I'm a man. Um, and that sort of stuff has been has been picked up and reported in in the international press and in the national press because it's it's very shocking, and I think it's it's uh, it's easy to understand exactly why he's doing it. I mean, there's there's a lot that's going on that's uh, that leaves some some doubt as to what's happening, and it's hard to to necessarily always understand what the what the reason is behind. I mean, why is it that Bolsonaro is is denying that uh, that coronavirus is a big deal. Why is he saying that um, that this isn't something that we should take seriously? Most likely, it's because uh, his worry about the economy and just his already uh, existing tensions with you know the scientific community and the and the media and uh, his his just innate desire to always follow the lead of of Trump. Um, and I think that he he's really worried that if if this happens, if if we were to do exactly what the scientists had said and force everyone to stay at home and give giant stipends to impre- to companies and to individuals that it would really uh, harm the economy. And that's that's the thing that's really uh, allowing him to hold on to to power and have the 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 endorsement of the most powerful actors in Brazil and, and outside of Brazil. Um, but there's also just there's there's a lot that's going on underneath the surface as well. I mean, I think uh, it's it's been very established that he's creating spectacles and creating uh, you know new news cycles to distract from the the other things that are going on in Brasilia that are concerning him even more. I mean, it's I I couldn't name off the top of my head all of the scandals that are swirling around Bolsonaro and his and his core group of of supporters right now because there's so many and they're all in different stages of development it's very complex and so um oftentimes it seems like he's he's using this as a way to distract from those things including uh, there's a, a major corruption investigation going into his son who's a senator Flavio um, that he was embezzling public funds from his uh, office when he was a state congressman, and uh, using that, we were the first to report that he used some of those funds to finance illegal construction projects by uh, paramilitary groups, essentially armed mafias. Um, and Bolsonaro has some involvement in that, um, and that's something that he's been very eager to try to suppress. And he's he's created new scandals, including. Um, Allegedly inter- intervening in the uh, the leadership of the federal police to try to suppress that investigation and others. Uh, there's another one that's going on about um, a massive inquiry in the in the Supreme Court and in the Congress about these networks of fake news uh, that have been going on since the the campaign that are supported by him. They, there there seem to be there appears to be. Um, People that work for him at the presidential palace, and they work for uh, con- members of Congress that are associated with him, and that that circle is starting to close in, and people are getting arrested in that, and that's something else that he's really eager to to avoid. And so, by creating these, you know, bombastic headlines, it's a 
it's a kind of a desperate attempt to to distract attention. It's again something that uh, that Trump is famous for doing as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I wanted to get into that a bit more because I, I know the Intercept has worked really hard to highlight some of the more systemic inequalities in Brazil, also the role of corporations, um, not just in bolstering Bolsonaro, but in sustaining pre-existing social and economic injustices uh, in in Brazil. I'm so when you when you talk about these sort of scandals around the pandemic and the ways that uh, Bolsonaro has been able to sidestep addressing sort of deeper, longstanding issues, could could you point a bit to some of the uh, missing pieces of analysis? If we're talking about BBC, for example, or the CBC in Canada, it's very much focused on Bolsonaro as an individual as opposed to uh, looking at Bolsonaro as sort of um, a political result of um, systemic issues in Brazil. Sure, yeah. Uh, Bolsonaro has basically three main uh, uh, pegs of, uh, that support him, uh, three main groups. And there's the, the extreme ideological wing, like the true believers that really subscribe to all of the um, more outrageous things that he that he frequently says and does the things uh, that were you know he was talking about um, you know anti-democratic measures and the homophobia and the the racism and the you know basically message that they need to mow down the the Amazon and, and let farmers do whatever they want these sorts of things the protections being against protections of indigenous rights those are you know they they believe it in all the language that he says. Um, but then the the two other wings of uh, major groups of support for him, they they also endorse or believe in many of the things that he says that uh, you know the media has found shocking or offensive. But they do it in in more subtle or muted ways. Um, and those two other groups are there's the military, which is the biggest contingent within his his government right now, and uh, has been growing, uh, having more and more positions in. in top spots in his administration. And then there's the, the international financial elite. And, you know, the, the Canadian mining companies are definitely part of that. Um, uh, all the, the big agro that's, uh, that's buying uh, Brazilian beef and big Brazilian soy and, uh, you know, German manufacturing that's in there and providing all the equipment. Uh, there's a lot of international trade that happens. And that group is uh, identi- or represented by his, his economic minister, Paulo Guedes. And Gedges is, he was, uh, he's a Chicago boy. He was literally an advisor to uh, Augusto Pinochet, who was the dictator of, of Chile um, when he was a younger man. And he's a, a far-right um, uh, economic neoliberal who, who really wants to get rid of regulations and, and make money. And he's, you know, those, those rules that he's been putting in place and these reforms he's been putting in place, trying to privatize all of the private uh, enterprises and really cut uh, pension benefits and, and spending and social services, uh, you know, cutting health spending, cutting education spending, uh, basically taking apart all the mechanisms that, that provided uh, regulation of, of environmental uh, protections and, and protections of indigenous communities in the Amazon. In, in the Amazon, indigenous communities are ex- extremely important to preventing, uh, you know, illegal mining and illegal logging. Um, they have been pushing to get rid of all these things that are that are you know allowing some protection and, and giving average Brazilian citizens some some minimum level of of support. Um, and you know, it's it's very hard to be 
Brazilian is very hard to be poor in Brazil. And right now, uh, the unofficial uh, unemployment rate is 50%. Um, and the the growth in the poverty rate since Bolsonaro's taken office has, has increased dramatically, even before the pandemic. And so these are the forces that uh, support Bolsonaro because of his economic agenda. They just wish that he would be a bit more polished and a bit more uh, sophisticated in his messaging. But uh, the, the mainstream media in Brazil is the same thing. Uh, Global, which is the biggest uh, media conglomerate, they put out an editorial a few weeks ago after all that he's done to attack them and to attack their, their reporters and try to remove uh, uh, pub public funding from them and advertising spending. They still, you know, criticized him. They still basically said, it would, you know, it would be great if he could just stop with all these distractions and focus on the economic agenda, which we all agree is a good thing. Um, and it's not necessarily a good thing. I don't think there's an actual consensus on that. But amongst the the global uh, elites and the the wealthiest uh, groups that are that have interest in Brazil, uh, they're definitely interested in reducing workers' rights and reducing uh, social spending and reducing regulations to allow them to do more extractive industries. Um, and that's, that's the big fight that is represented uh, in the Brazilian society right now. And it's not just Bolsonaro. Other candidates that lost that are were more right-wing represent this as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of social movements in Brazil, I mean, there's centuries of um, uh, organizing and resistance from indigenous communities um, that goes back to the point of colonization. Over the last century, there has been a very important relationship between social movements uh, across the Americas. That includes labor movements, feminist movements, student movements in Brazil. Um, and uh, there was a very interesting and complex relationship between the global, um, let's say, global efforts like the World Social Forum or, you know, different um, uh, efforts to try to create communication and alliances between the left globally with social movements in Brazil. Um, things have really changed in the last few years, but there's still important links um, I'm wondering if you can talk about why it's important for the left in the Americas to continue to try to follow and support social movements in Brazil today. Yeah, well, uh, right now the there's the left is essentially shattered into multiple pieces. There's not a unified coalition to to fight back against Bolsonaro, and that's been the real struggle um, with the the push to. Uh, for for Operation Car Wash, which we've reported on extensively, which which was the anti-corruption investigation that put uh, former President Lula in jail, uh, and he's been released since then. Um, it's it was really powerful in in passing the message that uh, the PT is corrupt, and the PT, the Workers Party that Lula represented, and they were in power for for over a decade. Um, they were supported by these elites, and they were co-opted in some ways, and they were actually able to. So they were at first bolstered by uh, workers' movements and social movements. And then while they were in office, they sort of uh, tamped them down a bit as they were more aligned with uh, the major economic interests in the country. And so they were, they've been weakened. Um, and then at the same time, the, the right had a very strong resurgence that, that pushed the wheat, that, that weakened the PT much more. And uh, under Bolsonaro, they, they changed the, the labor laws so that there's no more um, mandatory um, contributions to, to 
unions, for example. So that's a, a huge hit. Yeah, a huge amount is billions of hayes or hundreds of millions of dollars a year that was being put towards organizing and and you know uh, being a counterweight, and that was cut, and that was a huge victory for for the um, for the wealthy, for the for the owners, and the Bolsonaro administration, and so. There really is a moment of soul searching right now among within the left of you know how do we reorganize how do we modernize how do we restructure and and come together to create a, a countervailing force against this massive wave of white right wing extremism that's really got everybody on the defensive and so in that sense I think that it, it really is important to have international support. To, to be able to look at different models of, of what's working in other countries and to, um, you know, help the Brazilians because, uh, you know, in the beginning of the Bolsonaro administration, there's uh, multiple people that decided to leave the country under, because they felt too threatened or unsafe to be in, in Brazil. Um, and there's been some, some purges in, in certain areas that the government's been able to, um, to push, push out uh, PT appointees. Um, you know, I think that there, it's, it's pretty clear that there was plenty of corruption in the, in the workers' administration government, but it's, it's totally absurd, uh, this, this line that, you know, that they invented corruption, which is something they literally say, or that they are the most corrupt government in the history of the world. Um, that's not the case, um, but that's what the Bolsonaro supporters would say. Um, but, so there is also some... You know, some reflection that needs to be made there to so that if the PT were to come back to power, that uh, the same mistakes wouldn't be made. But clearly, uh, there were some huge advances that happened to to benefit um, working people in Brazil that are being uh, undone right now at a at a dramatic and rapid pace. Um, and you know, Brazil is is the regional powerhouse uh, economically. And it was always uh, under the you know the last decade or so it was a a international or regional leader in, in international politics as well and kind of a uh, a guiding light in many aspects and and right now it's it's the exact opposite of that uh, we're we're not leading anything um, except for we're we're second place in coronavirus infections and deaths. And we're really uh, following the lead of of Donald Trump in the United States in in all of the the worst ways, importing all of the worst policies rather than the the best ideas. And so it's important that there's you know there's movement that's being made outside of the government. The last uh, question, I'm sorry, um, just would be about um, indigenous people in Brazil, because um, I understand that there was numerous policies enacted around land protection um, under the PT government, um, just as a specific example of changes that have taken place uh, in this shift of power. And of course, what happens with indigenous land rights and indigenous people in Brazil uh, as as you mentioned, because of Brazil's role in the Americas, uh, has huge consequences. Yeah, indigenous land rights are are built into the the constitution that was created in the eighties after the end of the military dictatorship. Um, but the country was always rather slow in in recognizing those those rights specifically for specific tribes in specific areas. Um, which I think it's it's fair to say that was a that was a strategy. That was an intentional strategy. Um, 
because there's there's many many tribes that have that have pending uh, requests, and even under uh, the PT that was well that sped up. It was still much slower than um, indigenous uh, activists wanted um, and felt was fair. Um, however, it was much better than what you're getting now, where Bolsonaro campaigned on uh, the slogan of uh, not one centimeter more of, of new, um, newly demarcated indigenous lands. And actually, he's been going in the opposite direction of trying to, um, to remove protections, to, to open things up to mining, to, to create loopholes where, you know, if, if the tribe wants to allow miners to come in, then they're allowed to. And also slashing the budgets of, of the very few scarce uh, federal government employees that were going out and ensuring that illegal mining and logging wasn't happening and finding people and destroying their equipment. Now they don't destroy the equipment anymore. Uh, they have skeleton staff as compared to what it was before. And uh, you, can, you can go online and look at photos of, of you know, certain territories in the Amazon that uh, from the beginning of the Bolsonaro administration and now, um, and you can see massive deforestation in, in certain areas. And there's also obviously that, that massive um, uh, period of, of wildfires that happened in Brazil that, that got international attention and, and outcry. Um, where you know, it's it seems quite clear that the Bolsonaro administration is is more than complicit um, in in letting these things happen and actually helping to make these things happen. And there was a a tape of a cabinet meeting of the Bolsonaro administration that came out a few months ago, in which the the um, environmental minister said explicitly, uh, you know, with this coronavirus thing happening, we have. Um, Everyone's focused on that, and we should really take advantage of this moment to push through all the things that we've been trying to do. Um, and so, you know, he's also uh, being uh, under investigation, and in they're trying to get him removed. Uh, there's a prosecutor that's trying to remove him from his position because of uh, his lack of enforcement. Um, and and the indigenous communities are also suffering greatly from, from coronavirus right now. Uh, Amazonas state, which is the size of Alaska in the middle of the Amazon, uh, was one of the first and hardest hit states in the country in terms of coronavirus. And, and there's, uh, you know, remote tribes that have you know, very limited access to even major cities, but certainly not to hospitals or ICU beds that are, are being really ravaged by the disease right now. And that's only uh, uh, accelerating this, this war that is being uh, enacted upon them. Um, not that, you know, not that it was ever, it was ever great. It was, but it's, it's getting much, much worse now. Um, and it's, it's something that's very serious and needs, uh, more attention being, to be paid to it. Andrew, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thanks. That was a conversation with Andrew Fishman, uh, who's a reporter for The Intercept and the managing editor of The Intercept in Brazil, um, who uh, basically is documenting and chronicling the ways that the Brazilian government is trying to sidestep responsibility around the pandemic and the health crisis that is very real in Brazil. I'd really encourage people to check out the reporting from The Intercept Brazil. You can just search that. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks to Andrew for joining the, the show. Uh, this is Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. 
thanks for being with us. Um, on the tip of Brazil, I wanted to go to a piece of music from a friend of mine who uh, lives and works in Brazil, Cessa, uh, has a beautiful ensemble. Uh, this is a piece from his album that came out last year, Grandeza. was a piece from Cesa from the album Grandeza. It's a beautiful album. I really would encourage you to check it out. Uh, this is a Free City Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thank you for being with us. 
Um, I wanted to, on this show, now visit another location, a major city again, um, that has been dealing and grappling with uh, the realities of the pandemic in very serious ways. Uh, I wanted to go to this conversation I had with Seth Tabachman, uh, who is an artist, a longtime activist in New York City, who lives in the Lower East Side. Seth has been chronicling the pandemic, working on cartoons, um, drawings that have been widely uh, shared. Um, you can find them on thenib.com. I spoke to Seth about the ways that artists and community activists are responding not only to the pandemic, but of course the mass uprising against uh, police violence, the killing of black people by police forces in the United States in the wake of George Floyd's death, and how these interlapping systems of injustice um, existing, pre-existing uh, social and economic and racial injustice, uh, how that was enforced by the pandemic, and how also the response, uh, these protests uh, of Black Lives Matter, speak to systemic issues that actually relate to both the challenges around the pandemic and the struggles uh, for justice around the pandemic in terms of how the pandemic unequally impacts um, existing, um, well, communities that have existing um, structures of systemic racism and economic inequality in the United States, but also how the Black Lives Matter movement and the defund the police movement also speak to these issues. Um, so this is the conversation that we had with um, Seth Tabachman uh, in New York City by phone. Uh, hey, Seth, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for being with us. First, um, if you could talk a bit about um, the first few comics you did when it became clear that the pandemic was really seriously going down in New York City, about the the sort sort of state of mind you were in and what you were trying to communicate, given your long history of uh, social activism. Okay, um, I did two uh, short comic strips in the uh, first. Um, month or so of um, the lockdown here in New York. The first was a response to the lack of available testing, which was, um, you know, quite extraordinary for the first, uh, you know, month that it was impossible to determine whether anyone actually had the disease. And people who had symptoms were being told to stay home unless they were dying, and that only if someone was, you know, in the throes of death were they going to be tested for actual exposure, uh, because tests were largely unavailable. And it became clear that this was, in part, the result of the Trump administration uh, not wanting to import a functioning test kit from Europe, but wanting to design an American version, a U.S.-made version, which they didn't, they then failed to produce, or failed to produce effectively. So the tests were not available for the first month that this hit the United States. And so I did a comic strip about that, which um, ran on the um, the NIP, which is a comics website that does mostly uh, news-oriented, politics-oriented comic strips. 
So that was the first piece I did. And then in May, I did a second piece. And that was in response to the um, pressure that was being mounted to reopen the economy. And it was being um, mounted first in um, Georgia, actually. I had a friend who was an activist in Georgia, and we were talking on the phone a lot and comparing notes. And she felt that... um, the real impetus to reopen the economy was a way for the government to be relieved of the responsibility of um, writing out unemployment checks. Um, and that, that that was the real motive. And so we put together a piece, I put together a piece on that that also ran in the nib. So those are the two pieces I did directly on the subject of the pandemic. Your work has for a long time focused on the realities of working people and also the strength or lack of strength of public institutions. Um, you uh, address this in a pretty in-depth way through understanding the crash after the 2008 financial crisis and how yeah. that impacted working people. Um, maybe could you visit some of those points and how it compares to this moment? Does anything compare to this moment? Um, it's a very um, strange time where a lot of things are being drawn into question. Um, the biggest question is like, what obligation does society have towards the individual? You know, does the society um, have the obligation to maintain the life of the individual or not? And Clearly, we have some people who've thought for a long time that it doesn't. And that's, you know, that's who's in the government right now, is people who believe that really it's not their job to make sure that everybody is okay. And they would like to be relieved of that responsibility. And the way to be relieved of that responsibility um, is to create the impression that you know, it's being exaggerated. The problem isn't as bad as people think. Nobody really knows what's going on. Um, everything is going to get better magically. Let's just leave it alone and reopen the economy and um, let the chips fall where they may because they don't really want the obligation of protecting the health of the population. They don't think the state should have that obligation. And, and that's a big part of what the discussion is about right now. Well, it seems like this uh, entire pandemic has shown, well, I guess you could look at this point through two angles. Um, from the left, sort of the importance of public institutions and the role that they play when everything really uh, gets down to the line in terms of life and death needs. And from the, from the right, it also blows apart sort of the myth of manifest destiny on an individual level. Um, so as an artist, I'm, I've always also seen like your work sort of tries to address that space of, you know, the role of activism, but also the role of, you know, uh, working together <laughs> um, from your work on well, the squats to what's happening now. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, 
one of the things that's um, really apparent is that there are things that there are things that we need from the society that individuals or small communities can't provide for themselves right now. You know, we need medical facilities, we need a vaccine, we need a lot of stuff that it would be very hard for, you know, a local collective to provide to people. So that we need we need some type of institutional um, support for people in order for people to get through this. Um, I think um, within um, within the society right now, there's sort of two narratives developing, one coming out of the right and one coming out of the left. And it's interesting that the right and the left seem to be writing the scripts and the liberals seem to be very strikingly quiet right now in a lot of ways. The right-wing narrative sort of says that, um, you know, we want a lot of, we want certain types of individual liberties. We want, for instance, the right to not wear a mask and, you know, blow germs in the face of other people who might die of it. We, we, we feel we should have that right. The state shouldn't be able to force us to close down our business, to wear a mask. They shouldn't be able to restrain us in that way that uh, we want a state that doesn't prevent us from owning firearms, which is a pretty unique historic right. There are only a few countries in the world. I think Switzerland has similar uh, right to bear arms to the United States. Very few countries have that. But, um, you know, we, we feel the state shouldn't be involved in all those things. But they do want the state to be very involved in other things. They want a really extensive set of immigration controls, um, like huge and institutionalized and massive facilities to, to uh, seize and detain and deport people who come from outside of the borders of the United States. Um, they support a heavily militarized police force primarily directing its repression at black and brown people. They want that police force to be protecting property um, and to be putting pressure on certain groups of people. So they want a very active state in support of national identity, perhaps, you know, but they don't want that state to be able to restrain them in other ways. So that's, you know, one vision that's articulated really powerfully by all the people who support Trump. And then there's this other vision that's developing where we, you know, we do want a lot of protections from the society. We want the society to provide health care. We want the society to um, provide um economic benefits when we can't work. Um, we want the society to protect people from each other's abusive behavior. You know, we want extensive protections for women against sexual abuse, that, uh, protections that might not have existed for a previous generation. Um, and we're actually willing to accept a lot of limitations on our freedom in order to make each other safe. We're willing to accept the government 
telling us we have to wear a mask. We're willing to accept the government telling us we can't reopen our business. Um, on the other hand, um, we don't particularly like the mechanisms of state and how they work. We don't like the, the police force. We don't like the prison industrial complex uh, because we've seen how abusively those things function. So we also have a very contradictory relationship to the state, just as the right does. Um, the right's vision of the state is the state exists to protect um, the national identity of white people against other people. That's really, you can't really get around that. That's what they're saying. They want a very strong state directed at everybody but the white majority, or actually perhaps white minority of the United States. Right. We want a very interventionist social structure, but we want it, we we believe that if there were more um, supports for people, if people were better taken care of, the level of violence in society would go down, and there wouldn't be the need for this massive repressive apparatus that's been built up. So those are these two visions competing uh, for political space right now um, in the period when everything is shut down, which has allowed a lot of people to think a lot more about their politics, I think. Because, you know, the, the most repressive force in American society, let's face it, it isn't the police, it's the five-day work week. Could you expand on that, that point? If you give people some time, they actually start to think for themselves and start to form opinions. You know, most people are too tired to use their political rights. And in fact, if you look at the Federalist Papers, the argument is made very clearly that most working people will never participate in politics because they, they, their, their lives are too demanding. You know, and that the politics will belong to, to men of property because other people won't have time. It's in the Federalist Papers. You know, um, so the fact that Everybody had to stop for three months has opened up a lot of discussion among people about what type of society we want to have, which I think is going to be positive in the long run, although it's also allowed for a lot of crazy stuff to come out, too. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So, so for you as, a, as a, an artist that has such a deep involvement in community activism in New York City. How, how are you trying to explore uh, these ideas or any projects you're working on um, and also just where people could go to find out more about your work? Okay, well, I've been, I've been very fortunate, I have to say, um, in so much as I've been able to keep working as an artist through the entire pandemic. Um, that a lot of my work is done online at this point. Um, and it, as, a, as, a, as an art teacher, as a college instructor, um, all the colleges switched to working online in the New York area immediately. Actually, we, we really switched to going online before the whole city was locked down. Um, it was very much anticipated. So I was able to keep working there and um, I've been able to get my work out through the NIB, 
and I've been able to, um, like, one of my books came out right at the moment when the pandemic hit, and uh, we were very worried that that book was going to be, um, you know, completely destroyed by the closing of bookstores, but it turned out that it was sold online very well, so people were able to get that book, which was um, The Face of Struggle, which has been available and has been selling as well as any other book I've done over the last several months. Um, In terms of the work I'm doing now, uh, we've just taken to the printer an issue of World War III Illustrated, which is the magazine, the collectively produced comics magazine I started in 1979 with Peter Cooper, and we've done our most recent issue, um, which is focuses, it started out, I mean, we, we spend a year on each issue of the magazine. We started working on this, um, you know, a, a number of months ago before we anticipated uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so our focus was primarily on, um, we called it um, the world we're fighting for. And it was, you know, we sort of anticipated there being two worlds, two possible worlds being fought for this year, you know, the sort of um, socialist vision of Bernie Sanders and the fascist vision of Donald Trump. And, of course, that idea evolved because of what happened. Uh, But we've got, you know, a lot of different artists did really, I think, some of their best work. Uh, Sandy Jimenez did an amazing comic strip that I'm really proud to publish, uh, Mac McGill, um, we have a cover by Jose Munoz, so all that's available now. So I've been—that's a lot of work I've been doing. Um, so I've basically been primarily doing artwork for people and making that available to a lot of different people. So another um, really important um, political moment right now in the United States is the massive uprising, the protests uh, across. The, the U.S., uh, but also internationally, uh, sparked by the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Um, there's been serious protests in New York. Uh, this is not a new issue, of course. Uh, and Seth, you've been uh, addressing systemic racism and police violence through your art um, for many years. Uh, also, the connected issue of the overrepresentation of Black people within. Uh, the prison system in the United States. So how has this been um, in terms of your artistic response? And I can imagine also you've been participating in the protests in New York. First of all, you know, this is an issue we addressed in the magazine all the way back in, you know, 1983, 84. And, you know, I was involved in protests around the death of Michael Stewart and Eleanor Bumpers in the 1980s. So this this is not. Could you tell us uh, just yeah yeah something Ma- about those two Stewart cases? Was a yeah Michael Stewart was a. Um, I mean it's interesting like you know I I studied at Pratt Institute I studied art at Pratt Institute and Michael Stewart was also a student at Pratt Institute and um, you know I was um, you know trying to I was doing a lot of odd jobs and waiting tables and whatever while, you know, hoping to develop a career as an artist. And Michael Stewart was in that situation also. And Michael Stewart was murdered by 
the traffic police. And um, so, um, you know, we were very, all of us in the East Village were very aware that Michael Stewart was very much one of us as a community, so that uh, there were a lot of protests around uh, the police murder of Michael Stewart, which was never properly resolved, to be sure. You know, the police were not convicted and continued to work, in fact, you know, for the rest of their uh, working lives. They were not prevented from, you know, advancing in their careers after they murdered him. So that was an important issue, and it made me aware, and I think a lot of people I knew aware of the situation of police violence against black people. The most disturbing thing has been the fact that there have been so many cases, there have been so many protests and so little changes, right? And um, Well, I remember the comic that you did about Amadou Diallo also. Yep, that was in the 90s. So, and, and that was, you know, already, you know, a decade later, right? And, you know, it seemed like that was a lot of time then, but now that seems like no time because we're now um, 20 years advanced from that, and we're still talking about the same issue. So it's a very frustrating point that American police can't seem to uh, straighten up as far as, far as dealing with African-American people. Um, and, you know, that that's, uh, it seems to be something that can't be, can't be fixed within the normal structures of the system. Um, the week that um, the rioting started in uh, Minneapolis and we started seeing that on media, at that point there started to be marches through New York City and we went out to a number of them. And that was the first week we'd really been out of the house for three months. I would say 80% of the people at those protests were masked. I would say that um, you know, mask discipline was pretty good um, among the protest community. It was a strange experience because, of course, like you go out to a crowd of people and you're looking for the people you know, but they're all masked, right? We participated in those which were, for the first couple weeks, they were like very large and informal and um, somewhat spontaneous. Yeah, so that's part of what we've been involved in. That was a uh, longtime community artist and activist, Seth Tabachman. I called him in New York. Uh, really would encourage you to check out Seth's work at sethtabachman.com. Seth is an awesome human, um, amazing artist. Uh, all my respect to Seth. Thanks for being on the show. I wanted to go now to a piece of music uh, by Matthew Shipp, who lives in the same neighborhood as Seth Tabachman, the Lower East Side. Um, this is a piece from an album I love with Matthew Shipp leading on piano called New Orbit.
that was Matthew Shipp from the album New Orbit, William Parker's On the Bass there, also a beautiful album. Um, this is Free City Radio Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm here in Montreal, and on this show, I wanted to visit um, basically the ways that the pandemic has impacted different regions, different centers in the world, and the way that progressives and social activists are responding to this crisis. Uh, going to a totally different region now, um, but I think uh, underreported region in the world, which is the Balkans, but one that's very important in terms of the social and economic um, exchange that happens in the Balkans, which is really at the edge of Europe um, between the East and the West. I mean, this is a stereotype, but it's true uh, in terms of culture, in terms of historical complexities. And so I spoke with uh, journalist Maria Petkova, Uh, who's a Bulgarian reporter, and I talked with Maria about the ways that the pandemic is impacting the Balkans. We talked specifically about Bulgaria and the ways that the um, public health care system has been struggling with the pandemic in terms of personal protective equipment, but also the ways that public institutions in Bulgaria have suffered over recent decades um, due to uh, basically right-wing economic policies of privatization but also due to corruption. We also talked about former Yugoslavia and also Turkey uh, in this exchange. So this is journalist Maria Petkova, who covers the Middle East, Russia and the Balkans, um, contributes to a lot of different um, platforms, works with Al Jazeera and uh, many other uh, platforms globally. What happened in Bulgaria happened in a couple of other Balkan countries, which was um, the authorities were completely unprepared uh, for a situation like that. That said, I would say maybe 25, 30 years ago, the countries of the former Eastern Bloc had contingency plans and plans for emergency, a variety of emergency situations, including nuclear war, um, chemical weapons attacks, you know, earthquakes, all of this, including probably infectious diseases or like epidemics such as this one. Um, so what happened basically over the past 30 years that is that a lot of this preparedness of the state uh, was abandoned in all of these countries, including my country, Bulgaria. Um, so the person who took over, let's say, coordination or direct of the whole response uh, was the head of our military hospital. So back in the day, the military was responsible for um, a lot of these uh, contingency plans. So let's say there's a little bit of leftover uh, training that maybe this guy had that, you know, made him a bit more competent about, you know, responding to this situation. Um, In terms of, let's say, equipment, in terms of, personal protective gear, I mean, um, I think back in the day probably this existed after, um, you know, after the fall of the regime and all that, I don't think there was any attention paid to to the idea that maybe we should have preparedness um, for any global outbreak. And to be honest, you know, like my region is not necessarily that different from the rest of Europe for some reason, you know. Europe and parts of North 
America have always thought that they are beyond contagion or, you know, they're untouchable in a way. Yeah. Uh, so when we first started getting um, registered cases, um, was it was pretty late. Uh, from my conversations with doctors, um, it seems that the actual infection has been going on for a while because people were saying, or medical staff were saying that they had been observing these uh, very crazy um, lung, lung uh, okay. diseases early in February. Um, so some of them are guessing that the, uh, the epidemic started much earlier than the first um, cases okay. were registered. So it had been going on for a while. Now, when this started, obviously hospitals did not have did not have the uh, personal protective equipment to um, deal with this. A lot of hospitals were uh, made to accept patients uh, with such infections, and in a lot of places, doctors just simply refused to deal with them, just because they felt unsafe. And at that time, there were already a lot of reports coming out of Italy about dead doctors um, so that you know caused a lot of fear a lot of panic among like the medical workers um, I mean while my country has been coping with obviously like influenza like flu epidemics every year like clearly this is this was a, a, a completely other type of infection and epidemic so yes. people felt unprepared as well Mm -hmm. um, so apart from the PPE, obviously there were no procedures in place in hospitals for such um, infections to be handled. Um, so people were just, uh, yeah, they were just outraged at the fact that, you know, they're made to deal with highly infectious uh, patients without any kind of protection. Well, I found the comment that you mentioned, um, it's really outside of the mainstream narrative about the realities in Bulgaria or also like the former Yugoslavia in terms of like the Western narratives about like structures and infrastructures that were in place to deal with such situations. I mean, obviously not COVID-19, it's a different era, but I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit, a, a bit more about how current governments, I mean, there's been a lot of protests in Bulgaria and also in Macedonia in recent years against corruption. Um, but how have these governments relied on some of the infrastructure of the public institutions that were actually created at another time? It's a very long answer that yeah. I'll have to give in order to be comprehensive. Uh -oh. I'll try to be short. Thank you. So what has happened over the past few decades is that a lot of the institutions, a lot of the... Um, let's say, state-owned um, capital and whether, you know, like education or healthcare, all of that has been uh, dismantled uh, because we've been pushed into this, like, wild privatization mode. So in terms of infrastructure, obviously, we still have, you know, remaining a big chunk of um, the healthcare system that was built back in the day. However, I'll give you an example with my hometown. Okay. My hometown used to have a big hospital that, um, I don't know, maybe had like uh, hundreds of doctors working in it, 
hundreds of beds available. It's a huge, huge building. Um, after uh, the collapse of the regime and like all the restructuring of the healthcare sector and all that stuff, that hospital right now um, hosts um, a number of GPs, so general practitioners. Yep. Um, like a few specialists, maybe like you'd find an eye doctor, a gastroenterologist, a heart doctor. Um, and then it has uh, an emergency room, but the emergency room doesn't really have staff. It doesn't have a doctor. Wow. So you you get this huge building with, like, let's say, you know, a few dozens of doctors that are just general practitioners or, like, light specialists. Um, I think they did have um, maybe, like, 10... Mm-hmm. 15 beds for, for people who needed to be hospitalized um, for, like, internal problems. Let's, let's say they have an in, internal um, ward. Okay. Um, and they don't really have a well-functioning emergency. And wow. the people of, like, my area are very lucky because they live just, like, one hour away from Sofia. So, if, you know, there's a big emergency, they can actually be rushed to Sofia. But if there's a big emergency and they have to rely on this hospital, they'll probably die, (laughs) if you understand what I mean. So in terms of reliance, I mean, yeah, sure, there is infrastructure, but just how much of it is actually functional, not so much. I mean, back in the day, every village would also have like a a little health center. Um, It would have like a doctor uh, or at least like a nurse practicing and like you know giving immunizations, giving like basic like healthcare and all that stuff. That is completely gone. So villages rely on the nearest big city. So the good thing is the country is small, so you can get to a big city relatively easy. Let's say it would be like two hours, three hours away. Um, but you know, having to rely on that is a bit ridiculous. Yes, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing that and breaking that down. I mean, that's a really big topic, I understand, but thanks for outlining uh, those points. Um, I did read some articles about uh, the Chinese government stepping up at this time, not, I mean, specifically for Bulgaria, but more non-EU Balkan countries, uh, and also Gulf governments actually supporting, um, well, specifically Bosnia. Um, um, so I'm just wondering if if uh, you had any uh, comments about like the sort of promise of the EU versus the reality of material support in sort of a time of crisis. If there's a distance between the rhetoric of the EU towards like trying to open the door for Balkan countries, but then when there's a crisis, is the EU actually there? I mean, I found it interesting. Uh, there was a few texts about how China's been offering support, but I'm not sure. How, how that's actually playing out. So I just want to ask you about that. Yeah, well, the EU did support these countries as well. It's just that the EU, I guess, is not very good at PR, and China clearly is. So you didn't really hear about, like, the planes of aid that were coming in from the West to Serbia specifically because Serbia, the Serbian president made, like, a big deal about Chinese um, donations. So, I mean... Yeah, there are different players in the Western Balkans specifically. Uh, you have China, you have clearly Russia, and, uh, you know, one can say that there's some kind of a competition. But if you look at 
opinion polls, if you look at how people feel about things, I mean, no one wants to join Russia, no one wants to join China. Yeah. They want to be, you know, for them, the model of development is Europe and European, Western European, I mean. So, there is, yeah, sure, there is a bit of EU skepticism going on, um, but I think this is true about every EU country as well. Um, but if these people are given the chance, they would overwhelmingly vote to join the EU. Uh, so, yeah, you can say that, um, you know, China, Russia are looking to exploit, um, let's say, uh, the, the lack of, um, not commitment, but let's say the lack of, of uh, push from the EU right now to expand and to to get these countries um, a membership, an EU membership as soon as possible. But, okay. you know, it, it has a limit to how much it can do, you know, and you know, the, the Serbian president is playing his own political game, you know, touting, like, good relations with China. In the end, how much can China do for you? Mm -hmm. How much can you export to China? How much can you import from China? Like, for all of our countries, like, the biggest trade partner is the EU. And that's it. Even, like, for countries like Turkey. So, that's just the reality. Yeah. Um... Well, I guess finally, I did wanted to end on the question of Turkey, uh, also Balkan country in a lot of ways, uh, obviously. I'm just wondering if you could, um, because in Turkey, it's been a much more severe situation, particularly in, in Istanbul. Um, yeah. Uh, how, what's your take on where things have been at in Turkey? Is that something you've been looking at uh, at Al Jazeera also? The situation in Turkey is also quite interesting. For a long time, um, I think uh, the general public or parts of the general public were believing that, um, just like us, I guess, in Europe, that you know the, the virus is not going to come. There were all kinds of funny statements made on TV that uh, there's a Turkish gene that makes uh, people in Turkey immune to the disease. Oh, wow. Clearly that <laughs> that, oh, wow. that did not turn out to Oops. be true. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, Turkey is going through, um, let's say, a uh, catch-up uh, type of response. I think they were also late into testing, just as we were in the Balkans. For a while, there was kind of, let's say, like a gap of like a few weeks in which, you know. It, it's, it was almost impossible that there was no infection in the country, but for some reason there was no, no registered case. Uh, I mean, they have a border with, with Iran, and like I think that did not get closed until maybe late February. So, you know, wow. in my opinion, they, they had cases much before they, they announced, just like uh, in my country. Um, and in terms of uh, response and reaction, I think once they realize how bad this can go, I think they they made the necessary and uh, they took the, me the the necessary measures. Um, I think they were pretty good about um, closing mosques and uh, big congregations. That was a bit delayed, but at least they managed to pull that through. Like unlike, for example, in my country, where for some reason the churches. Um, 
continued to be open and were open all the time. Like they never closed, and oh, wow. we had like um, we had Easter mass and all that with you know one spoon being used during the ceremonies and all that crap. So. Uh, so yeah, so they managed to, I think, take some tough measures. They put on lockdown people during the weekends, which was, I guess, important. So that prevented a lot of uh, mixing and spreading of the virus. And I mean, if you look at the numbers there, I think in terms of infections, they have a large number. It's above uh, 100,000, I believe. Um, but the death rate, you know, compared to what you would see in... Uh, the UK or like Italy, Spain, like they're still not there. They're at like four thousand or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess you know whatever they've done so far has worked. I think they're about to also open up the country after um, the Bayram, wow. to a certain extent with you know certain restrictions in place. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I guess. Do you have any general comments about like what this pandemic says about the state of the Balkans in general in terms of, I know each country is specific, but in terms of the economic and health health, but also the social health of the region? I mean, I think what for me it made that much starker was the um the brain drain of medical staff that has been going on for years and years and years. I've written about this in the past, but I think this became even more sharp in uh, in focus after um, the outbreak began. Um, a lot of the doctors were basically who were protesting or refusing to treat COVID patients were basically saying, I'm old, I'm in that risk group. And if you look at uh, how aged the the population, um, the medical staff population is in Bulgaria, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I, I haven't been able to find an actual um, number, median age for doctors in Bulgaria, but I assure you, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. pretty high. Wow. You know, it might be 50 something, for wow. example. Wow. For nurses, definitely, it's like 50. Um, because nurses, like, escape even more than doctors. They're really highly sought after in the West. Wow. Um, so, and I think this is the case also in Romania. I'm sure uh, they have shortages of doctors as well. In, in um, the Western Balkans, I've heard Greece suffered a huge brain drain after the collapse. Um, and, like, the austerity measures kicked in. Yes. A decade ago. So, so yeah, so everyone has uh, has suffered from this. Um, and no one really, none of the governments have really actually taken concrete measures to, to, to encourage people to stay. You know, we have a lot of medical students graduating every year. And I've talked to a lot of them, and a lot of them just want to immigrate immediately because they have the opportunities and all these uh, companies from the West, especially in Germany and the UK, they they come even before they graduate and start recruiting them and promising them jobs, promising wow. them specialization for free and all that stuff. And the Bulgarian government is not only allowing this, it's it's also not really giving any kind of a, you know, reason for these people to stay. It's not like uh, creating any pro- uh, programs to encourage doctors to stay, to encourage doctors to be, um, let's say, in the smaller towns, like my town, 
uh, in Bulgaria to like go and like do uh, public health um, initiatives, say in the villages and all that. So it's yeah, it's a, a big healthcare public health failure, I would say, in the Balkans. And I'm, I think it's so far, the only thing that's saving us is that we have, like, relatively low population density. I, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I can see that death rates so far have been low in the region, and I think that's probably the only reasonable explanation. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Stefan. That was a conversation with journalist Maria Petkova, um, who covers the Balkans. Uh, we talked about the impacts, as you've just heard, of the pandemic on the Balkans. I thought that was a region to explore that is grappling also with the pandemic, COVID-19, COVID but also a region that is not reported on heavily. Right now, there's protests in Bulgaria uh, when this podcast is releasing. Um, I'm particularly interested, focused on that region uh, because that's um, part of my heritage. I'm Bulgarian Macedonian, so I wanted to understand the ways the pandemic was affecting the region. And also, I do think that it's important to look to regions like the Balkans, like Central Asia, that are less on the map, quote unquote, politically, um, because global events do have an impact. And also there are social movements uh, working for uh, change and for social justice. So I guess on that tip, we'll uh, go out now from the show. Uh, this has been Free City Radio um, podcast. Thank you for being part of this. Thank you for listening. This is the 12th edition. I'm recording here in Montreal. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe. And um, it's really uh, would be great if you could uh, let people know about the podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at S-T-E-F-A-N dot C-H-R-I-S-T-O-F-F at gmail.com. I'm on uh, Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And um, you can find Free City Radio podcast on Apple. So you can give us a rating if you like. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Um, this is obviously a very DIY thing. Just doing this at home, especially in the context of uh, COVID-19. I do have a weekly program on CKUT Community Radio in Montreal at 90.3 FM. It broadcasts on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. So uh, you can check that out uh, uh, if you're in Montreal and globally at ckut.ca. But this podcast has a little bit of a different approach. Um, so thanks for being with us. It's really been a pleasure to share these voices. Um, thank you to Maria Petkova, a Balkan journalist, to Seth Tabachman in New York City, and Andrew Fishman at The Intercept in Brazil. I wanted to go out with a piece of music by my brother, Jordan Christoph, an ambient track from his album Water. <laughs>